following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. The sermon this morning is a continuation of a sermon series entitled Living in the Vine, based upon Jesus' teaching, I am the vine, you are the branches. That image has many layers of meaning, as we've noted in the series. One basic reality about a vineyard is that it has past and future elements. A vineyard thrives on the basis of past development of the vines, but it grows afresh each year in order to create the future harvest. Today, we are considering how past, present, and future all connect in the life of faith. Let's be for a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Recently, I have been going through 28 years worth of church files. Some things, a lot of things, get thrown into the trash. Some things are going into folders for Dr. Howe. Some went into folders for our church archives and some personal items I'm, I'm keeping. It has been a journey down memory lane. I created a folder of all the original records of the formation of what became the County Clothing Center. I was reminded of the extraordinary leadership of Kathy Hardy and the Missions Committee of this church who pursued a vision of creating a community distribution of slightly used clothing to the needy, a vision that bore much fruit. Along that line, I assembled a folder of past leadership directories stretching across a quarter century detailing how new leaders came on in this church year after year. I was reminded of all the people who have so ably served this church in a great multitude of ways. I came across photographs of youth retreats or confirmation classes of long ago, or the couples retreat that took place at Atwood, or church floats that we placed in community parades. I was reminded of all sorts of events in which people grew in faith and shared their faith. I collected the records of missionaries that we sponsored across two decades. I was reminded I used to translate the German language newsletter of one of them. I gathered the records of advertising campaigns that we did in a newspaper, and even an advertising campaign we once did in the Kent Theater. I was reminded of all the ways that we reached out over the years with the good news and the love of Christ. I assembled financial records, the records of various capital campaigns, recalling the faithful stewardship of this congregation. I read through lots of personal notes from members of the congregation which I will treasure. I have a lot of good memories from these years together. But with that, I've also been moved to think about the function of memory in the life of faith. The story we heard from the book of Joshua is a key Old Testament story on this theme. The story unfolded at a critical juncture when the people of Israel, emerging out of 40 years of wilderness wanderings, were preparing finally to enter into the promised land. But their way was blocked by the Jordan River. I noted in last week's sermon that ordinarily the Jordan is only a modest sized river, but the people of Israel 
were crossing at its widest point, at its southern terminus near where it flows into the Dead Sea, and they were trying to cross in the springtime when the river can be swollen to flood stage by spring rains and snowmelt from Mount Hermon, which is at the headwaters of the Jordan. The reference in the scripture to the time of harvest is referring to the late spring harvest in Israel. What the people confronted was a wide, raging river that was impassable. God instructed Joshua to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant down to the river. The Ark of the Covenant was the gold-covered portable chest topped with cherubim figures which held the tablets of the Ten Commandments and which was the central symbol of the presence of God. The scripture says that the priests carried the ark to the river, and as soon as their feet touched the water, the flow of the river stopped, so that a pathway opened up across the Jordan. We are specifically told that the waters piled up in a heap at a small riverside town called in Hebrew Adam, at a point about 20 miles to the north of where the people of Israel were crossing the river. Near Adam, there are high bluffs close to the river. In 1927, there was a landslide in that vicinity, which stopped the flow of the Jordan for a 20-hour period. Perhaps such a landslide is what literally caused the water to pile up in the days of Joshua. Of course, this would not reduce the miraculous nature of the event. For an extremely rare landslide to occur and completely block the river at precisely the point when Israelite priests, after wandering for 40 years through the wilderness, were trying to cross the river, that is a miracle. But it would simply be like other biblical miracles where God typically worked through the elements of nature. Miracles are obvious to those who have eyes of faith, who can recognize the miracles of God's creativity and goodness that take place in the world all the time. But those who do not want to believe can always explain things away, the wonders of this world, as being mere coincidence. At this juncture, the story has a powerful message for us today. It says that when we encounter obstacles in life and there seems to be no way forward, we need to trust in God because God's power can open the way through raging waters. As Joshua would later say at the end of chapter four, the hand of the Lord is mighty. Here are the priests in the story offer an inspiring picture of what trusting in God means. The priests were told by Joshua that they should head down to the river while the water was still flowing strong. And Joshua told them that, that you know, when they, they tried to step into the river, that then the water would be stopped. As they began to step towards the river, I have to wonder if at least one of them was thinking I sure hope this works. But what gave them confidence was the fact that they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which signified 
God's presence with them. The assurance of God's presence is what God gives to all of us through Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. When we know that the Lord is with us, then no matter what the obstacle, we can move forward not in fear, but in faith. Following the Ark of the Covenant, the people of Israel were able to cross the Jordan safely and enter into the Promised Land. But then Joshua had the people do something very important. He had them pull out large stones from the now exposed riverbed, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he had the stones set up as a memorial monument. The stones were to remind future generations of what God had done. Unfortunately, the stones are no longer there. Most structures from the ancient Near East have disappeared or been completely buried as conquering peoples have ravaged one place after another and have often repurposed the stones. But the scripture has replaced the stones as the repository of holy memory. When we read the Bible, we experience something analogous to what I experienced when going through those church files. We are reminded of what God has done through the ages, and we draw something of the insights and the faith of the past into the present. This dynamic is at the heart of what is going on in the sacrament of communion. The passage we heard from 1 Corinthians recalls Jesus' instructions to his followers to share the bread and the cup and to do so in remembrance of me. The original Greek word translated remembrance is the word anamnesis, which means not simply to know some facts about the past. It has a sense of recollecting the past so that we bring past truths and past experiences into the present. In communion, we do not simply acknowledge that Jesus once had a last supper with his disciples. We recognize that Jesus is with us now, sharing in this holy meal with us, so that we, like the first disciples, can be nourished by Christ's redeeming love and power. So as we think of the past in our church, we can be inspired today by how God has been at work among us throughout many years. But there's one other notable feature of the story of the crossing of the Jordan. When the people set up that memorial to remember the past, they did not stay at the memorial. They moved forward and God led them in fresh ways. Today in our church, it is likewise a time of moving forward in new ways. In fact, if you look at the story of our church over the past 28 years, one of the most notable features of our history is that it has been marked by constant change and development. There is only one member of our church staff who has been here since 1995. That would be me. <laughs> Dr. Wiley is a close second, started in 1996. There is no room in our building that is exactly the same as it was in 1995. 
most rooms, most spaces in the church have been thoroughly renovated. The sanctuary looks different. Some rooms have been renovated more than once, or they at least have new equipment or furnishings. The exterior also looks different. On our sanctuary, for example, there's a portico built in 2006. Our worship design has continually changed. One of the first elements to change was the location of the offertory at our traditional worship services. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, mainline Protestant churches almost always had the offertory before the sermon, and that was the practice here in Kent for decades. But when I was in seminary in the 70s, worship professors were emphasizing that we give in response to God's grace and God's word. And so the offertory, they suggested, really should be after a congregation hears the scriptures and the sermon because it's a way of responding to what God has done. A few months, just a few months after I arrived in Kent, I moved the offertory to after the sermon. I don't recall that anybody complained about the change. In the year 2000, we added the video screens to our worship spaces, a major innovation at the time. And over the years, we've continually made changes in how many hymns we've sung, where the hymns were, when the organ played, how the candles were lit, or what the sermon pattern was. Recently, as you may know, I've, I've been pretty much continually using sermon series. But 25 years ago, I only rarely did a sermon series. In 2012, I did a sermon series entitled, God is Good All the Time. And we began using that phrase to open every worship service, as a number of churches do around the world. We did not have that pattern before. The contemporary service has likewise gone through many changes since it started. It began as an evening student-oriented service and went through many developments to become the service it is now. The last big wave of worship adjustments happened during the pandemic. And following the pandemic, we introduced a somewhat different structure in all three of our worship hours, different from what we had done before. So please do not ever say to Dr. Howe, we have always done it this way, <laughs> because there's almost nothing that we've always done the same way. The only thing I can think of in worship that we've done the same way since at least 1995 is that we've always sung Silent Night at the end of the Christmas Eve service, and we've always sung Christ the Lord is Risen Today at the beginning of the traditional Easter services. It's probably a high time that that should change. The Bible lifts up a pattern of holy memory, illustrated in those memorial stones by the Jordan and culminating in the sacramental memory of communion. It is the process of recalling the grace and blessing of God in the past in order that we might be equipped for living in faith today. It is not a practice of being stuck in the past. Our remembrance of God's goodness enables us rather to move confidently into the future in new ways. A good illustration is the vineyard. In order for a vineyard to thrive, it cannot stay the same. 
The wine grower prunes the vines, trimming away some old pieces in order to facilitate fresh new growth. The vineyard, symbolizing God's church, is thus grounded in the past, but stretching in new ways into the future, and so is able to continue to bear much fruit. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we give thanks for good memories. We thank you for how you have been at work among us in years past, and we pray that you would inspire us, like those people who crossed the Jordan, to live with that kind of holy memory, to recall your wondrous deeds among us, the movement of your spirit here in this congregation, that we might be equipped for moving forward in faith, living in fresh ways as guided, O Lord, by you. We thank you that you draw us into the life of this church, that together we can grow, that together we can reach out in mission to the world. We do reach out to persons in times of particular need. We pray for those who are sick and pray especially this morning for Kathy Smith. We pray for those who are mourning and continue to pray for the family and friends of Bill Head. We pray for the larger United Methodist Church, lifting up our fellow United Methodists at the Ritman United Methodist Church this morning and praying for our annual conference this week, O oh Lord, that it might be guided by your wisdom. We thank you for the many ways, O oh God, in which we have known your goodness and grace. And we thank you that no matter what the obstacles that may arise in front of us, we can look to you in trust and know that you are a God who continues to open the way into a new and bright future. Lead us this morning as we would be receptive in faith to your presence with us now, that we may journey in the confidence of your presence with us, that we may lift our hearts truly to you in devotion, and we may share in the wonders of your everlasting blessings and lift to you the praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.